Hello there, welcome along for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for joining. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. This is episode number 107, and in it, we hear from Ayhan Kaya. He's Professor of Politics and the John Manet Chair at the Department of International Relations at Istanbul Bilgi University. He's also the author of a book called Turkish Origin Migrants and Their Descendants, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan. It's a brief but stimulating book asking some tough questions of all sides in the process of migration from Turkey to Europe since the 1960s. Kaya traces how both home and host countries have increasingly but reductively defined migrants to Western Europe within rigid religious identity boundaries, why that's happened in recent decades and what the effects are. But before we get started, a few points of order. First of all, some good news, that is that Turkey Book Talk is now available to listen to on Spotify, if that's your thing. Just do a little search in the podcast section and there it will be. Also remember that if you haven't already, do consider supporting the podcast by signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Becoming a member gets you various extras including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, signed up members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so a membership will cost you no more than $6 per month. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ayhan Kaya. We talk about the history of Turkish migration to Europe a bit later on, as well as the much-talked-about so-called brain drain from Turkey in more recent years. But I started by asking him how and why he set out to write this book in the first place. The idea of writing uh, this book uh, appeared when I was doing my sabbatical year uh, at the European University Institute, where I uh, came across many uh, famous uh, scholars uh, working on Islam in Europe, uh, European Islam, Turkish origin, uh, migrants in Europe, etc. And uh, I was personally very much disturbed by the, you know, labeling of uh, all these people uh, living in Europe, mainly Muslim origin people living in Europe by famous uh, scholars labeling them as simply Muslims and putting them into the same uh, basket without really making any differentiation between their social classes, between their uh, national origins, uh, ethnic origins, uh, even uh, their uh, different uh, sects. So uh, this labeling of so many diverse uh, group of people simply as uh, Muslims, uh, I didn't find it, I don't find it uh, very accurate. I find it very uh, problematic. And I think this is one of the reasons why we are uh, lately talking too much about Islam, uh, Islamophobia, 
xenophobia and Islam as a threat to the European way of life, as a civilizational threat and all these things. So these uh, things brought me to, you know, write uh, this book based on my earlier uh, social anthropological research conducted in Germany, France, Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, so basically the idea came from this uh, experience. There's a quote in the book, quote, The concept of Islam as an identifying force has entered the public discussion in the last three decades. Prior to that, there were Turks, Algerians, Pakistanis, Yemenis, Kurds, Arabs and so forth, who were not necessarily defined as being Muslim. All these identities have come to be broadly designated as Muslim communities now, labelling migrants as Muslims or Muslimizing them. Just talk about that shift. It's a very broad one. When and why did it happen and what are some of the practical consequences? Yes. Well, even before that, uh, they were all called as workers, you know, uh, in 1960s when the first migration, uh, you know, process appeared in the European countries, primarily in Germany and the other European countries, as well as in the UK. They were, you know, invited by the home states from uh, not only Turkey, Morocco, Algeria, but also Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, uh, the Balkan countries, etc. In the 1960s, uh, they were all called workers and uh, they were aligning with the uh, German workers uh, in the labor unions, aligning with the French workers, uh, you know, nature workers, etc. So the class was the defining element in those uh, days, uh, irrespective of the nationality, ethnicity and religion of all these uh, people. And then the uh, framing of these people, of these workers as Turks, uh, Bosniaks, uh, Spanish, Italian, Greek, uh, started to appear back in the early uh, 1970s when migration was officially stopped uh, by the European Western countries. So then that is the time when the frame uh, became more ethnicized. The framing of these people as simply Muslims and non-Muslims uh, appears back in the 1990s when the Cold War came to an end. Uh, when the USSR uh, disappeared and when Islam replaced uh, communism as the other, uh, ideologically as the other of the capitalist uh, West. So this shift appeared in the West uh, depending on the uh, transformation of the welfare state to a neoliberal one on the one hand and uh, depending on the the solution of the USSR and Islam replacing uh, communism as the ideological other. So we cannot really talk about migration, migrants and their descendants, or we cannot really talk about Islam, Muslim origin people, etc., without uh, analyzing this macro, global, political and social economic uh, changes, transformations uh, in the world. It strikes me, as I was reading the book, that this um, essentializing that we're discussing here is something that was done, it's something that is done by both uh, right-wing political forces in Europe and also by uh, right-wing forces in Turkey, including the current government. There's almost a curious sense of shared interest there, in a way, between these two supposedly opposite forces. It's very curious when you when you reflect on it, it's almost a shared, reinforcing uh, state of mind of being you know, culturally fixated and having these rigid categories categories that uh, particular groups of people have to fit into. And and you talk about that in the book as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is uh, exactly how it is. I think uh, these uh, two uh, ways of framing the reality uh, is a rather uh, culturalist uh, way, uh, religious way and civilizational way. 
And as long as we frame everything uh, within religious terms, culturalist and civilizational terms, uh, we don't really have a third space to communicate about uh, the things happening in the uh, world. So uh, when you look at the uh, migration phenomena uh, in the European uh, context, unfortunately, especially since 1990s, uh, since the introduction of the untinctin paradigm of clash of civilizations, uh, things have become really culturalized. Things have become really religionized. Civilization has been reduced to religion only. So this was the process, the, the game changer, actually, which uh, led uh, many politicians, many scholars, many media analysts, and of course, lay people to frame the realities uh, in accordance with the culturalist, civilizational and religious uh, language. So what happened in the end is that all these uh, social, economic, political and psychological phenomena have been uh, simply uh, explained through a culturalist uh, discourse. What is happening in the uh, Western world as well as in the other parts of the uh, world with respect to the migrant origin uh, people uh, is that uh, there is only one dominant paradigm, that is the uh, civilizational paradigm. So Muslim origin people in the West are mostly considered by the ordinary decent uh, European citizens or states, uh, men and women, even academics, as uh, a group of people who challenge the European way of life. And uh, on the other uh, side, uh, there is another group of elites, political elites, who have a vested interest in framing uh, these people with reference to their religious identities, to their Islamic identities. So this uh, uh, civilizational paradigms on both sides actually contributes to the co-radicalization of both sides uh, without really understanding each other. And we are really far from detecting the fact that uh, most of the problems that we are having at the moment in the world are socioeconomic, political and psychological based uh, problems. But we are stuck in a culturalist and civilizational discourse. These are the things that I try to uh, bring up in the uh, book, William. I'm going to quote from the book again here. Uh, you say at one point, modern states prompted religious minorities to organize themselves along with representative religious institutions without an attempt to see if these Muslim, Jewish or Alevi communities are homogenous at all or to yeah. see if they identify themselves primarily as Muslims, Jews and Alevis when asked, classifying with the assumption that individuals should be automatically classified within the boundaries of that community of faith. Could you just give uh, some concrete examples, really, of this happening in various uh, European countries? Well, a few years ago, there was a really interesting uh, working group uh, had by Joschka Fischer, the former foreign minister of Germany, within the framework of the uh, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism working group of the uh, Council of Europe. And I was also invited to uh, one of their uh, working uh, group communication uh, in Istanbul. And there was really something very interesting uh, which happened there. One of the uh, persons who was invited to talk about her own experiences was a Muslim origin, Turkish Muslim origin lawyer from the Netherlands. Uh, she was said scarfed, quite normal, of course. But uh, her contribution, her intervention was actually quite uh, illuminating, quite exemplary, quite representative of what I try to do, what I try to uh, display in the uh, book. She said, I came to the Netherlands back in the 1970s uh, with my parents who were originally very secular people. And then uh, in the Netherlands, I found out that I myself was Islamized. 
So this is very interesting uh, intervention uh, because I also argue that the European uh, states are not actually secular per se, are not actually laicist per se, even the ones who claim uh, to be so, like France, like the Netherlands, like uh, Germany. Uh, this means that there is uh, a really interesting two sets of paradoxical processes happening in Europe uh, at the same time. On the one hand, uh, quite a number of uh, Muslim origin people are liberalizing Islam, individualizing Islam, because they study in the European countries. Uh, they went through the uh, European uh, curricula in their different uh, countries of uh, residence. Uh, they use uh, Google, they use Internet, they use social media. Uh, they don't have the mediation of any clerical people. They don't have the mediation of any any particular institution, be it a mosque, be it an alim, uh, an intellectual, uh, Muslim intellectual person. They basically have access to everything. This is really a reformation of Islam, democratization of Islam, individualization of Islam. But on the other hand, what is really happening paradoxically is that uh, the European countries are trying to institutionalize Islam, trying to uh, put everyone uh, into the uh, box of religion, underestimating the fact that uh, most of these people are actually their own citizens. So instead of uh, emphasizing uh, a civic identity, it is many of the European states who underline the uh, religious identity of these individuals. So this is how the accommodation of Islam in the European countries is actually taking place in Europe through uh, Conseil Musulman, Executive Conseil Musulman in France, the same institution in Belgium, the Muslim uh, summit in Germany, uh, or the pillar system in uh, the Netherlands. And I think the European states are still far away from uh, perceiving these people mostly as their equal civic uh, citizens. Instead, what they do is uh, identify them as simply Muslims and then to imprison them into this uh, religious uh, box. Uh, of course, if you imprison them into the religious box, uh, then they find it uh, more handy to invest in uh, their religious identities. And this is, uh, in a way, contributing to the essentialization of uh, Islam in the West, uh, which is, in the end, uh, leading to uh, a stronger Islamophobia on behalf of the uh, many European citizens, which, in the end, uh, turn the European public uh, to become more culturally Christian as a response to this, uh, you know, growing visibility of Islam. So this is uh, the way I see uh, the debates about Islam Islamophobia in the uh, European countries at the moment. A lot of the uh, discussion that we've had is about the policy in Europe and how that has uh, essentialized uh, mm -hmm. a lot of migrants and put them into a category of being Muslim. But at the same time, there's also a more sort of global movement that developed really with the rise of Islamism in the 70s and 80s and 90s. It was a pulling of both ways, really. There was a, on the one hand, there was this new, very rigidly ideological movement that was capturing a particular intellectual trend among a lot of young people and at the same time that was playing into other movements that we've discussed already uh, in Europe whereby you know the official policy would be to to put people into categories so it was almost a perfect fit perfect timing uh, did they sort of reinforce each other or did they encourage each other or how do you see the balance working 
Well, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, William, the game changer is 1974 uh, oil crisis, which was uh, preceded uh, by the Israel-Arab war. So this is really the moment, uh, this is really uh, the game changer in world politics, uh, because remember 1970s when the rapprochement between uh, East and West was becoming obvious, uh, leading to the formation of the Helsinki Citizens Assembly, uh, formation of the uh, Conference of cooperation and security in Europe, uh, which later led to the formation of the Organization of Cooperation and uh, Security in Europe. So this time, uh, really, the Middle East became the other and Islam became the ideological other of uh, the West. This sets up the tone and this created uh, a great transformation. The oil crisis created this uh, great transformation of the European welfare states uh, to neoliberal uh, states. So what happened was that migrant origin people or working class origin people who did not really have any other competence to comply with the uh, rules and regulations of the globalizing economy had to surrender. Uh, labor unions were no longer effective. Political parties uh, did not really listen to them anymore. Mainstream media did not pay any attention uh, to these people anymore. So what happened was that uh, these people uh, had to find refuge in their ethnicity, in their religion. So I see things have really changed uh, back in uh, 1970s because of this uh, social economic uh, transformation of the uh, world. Let's talk now specifically about uh, migration from Turkey. Large-scale migration of people born in Turkey really started in the 1960s to Europe. Uh, in the 1960s, it was mainly manual labor that left Turkey to work abroad in European countries, particularly Germany, of course, but others as well. In the 1970s, then, you know, the family members of those earlier emigrants joined them uh, through various family reunification schemes. And then in the subsequent decades, the, uh, the 1980 military coup led to many politically or oriented intellectuals and Kurds, uh, Alevis, Syriacs to leave the country. And of course, in recent years, there's been another wave of people, uh, you know, intellectuals, academics, leftists, liberals, often educated and well-connected people moving from Turkey to Europe. So this just uh, illustrates really, I suppose, the point that you're making, which is that, you know, Turkish migrants, migrants more generally are a very diverse bunch and cannot really be fit into homogenous uh, categories. Well, uh, you put it very well, actually. Uh, that is uh, the summary of the uh, long process of Turkish migration to the European uh, countries. Of course, we cannot uh, simply talk about, let's say, Turkish origin people generating similar identities all around Europe because uh, their migration process uh, was really quite different from each other. Just to give you an example, uh, migration process in Germany was heavily controlled by the federal uh, state. Federal state uh, did not appreciate the possibility of uh, Turks uh, experiencing a chain migration, for instance. Chain migration was not the case in Germany. But in those years, France was competing with uh, Germany. Uh, Belgium was competing with Germany for a uh, fresh uh, labor force. So in order to attract Turkish uh, workers, what they uh, did was to uh, let the Turks uh, migrate through a chain migration uh, process. So family migration, chain migration, 
migration in France and in Belgium, for instance, is much more visible than it was in in Germany. So uh, different uh, cases, different uh, stories, uh, different uh, state structures shape the identities of uh, migrant origin people extensively. Uh, this is uh, one point. And the second point is that, yes, Turkish migration to Europe is either economic-based or political-based. Economic-based migration was uh, discussed, was uh, studied extensively, uh, but political-based migration was not really uh, studied that much. So 1960 military coup was a more left-wing coup in Turkey. And this brought about the migration of uh, so many Muslim uh, intellectuals uh, escaping from uh, Turkey. So this is uh, the first wave of political, politically formed migration. And then uh, in 1970s, uh, there was another coup in 1971, which uh, was a, a right-wing neoliberal coup. Uh, which uh, alienated left-wing groups in Turkey, such as the Kurds, Assyrians, Alevis, etc. But the massive uh, migration of the uh, ethnocultural and ideological minorities in Turkey is after 1980 coup, uh, which led uh, to the massive migration of left-wing people and Assyriac people, Alevi people and Kurdish people. This time migration was not simply to Germany, but mostly to uh, countries like Switzerland, and uh, Sweden. And then for a long time, migration from Turkey to Europe, you know, went down because of the stability in uh, Turkey and the Europeanization process of Turkey. On the contrary, during this uh, time, especially in 2000s, there was a net migration from uh, European countries uh, to uh, Turkey, not only the Turkish origin uh, people coming back to Turkey because of the economic prosperity, liberalization, uh, Europeanization of the country, but also many European citizens uh, who came to Turkey because of the lifestyle, uh, sun, and history uh, of this country. And then, uh, again, things uh, went the other way around uh, after 2015, 2016, uh, when Turkey has become more authoritarian, more uh, undemocratic. Uh, again, minority nationalism, majority nationalism played a big role in that. And of course, uh, night, uh, 2016, 15th of July, uh, failed coup attempt, uh, which which, uh, caused another wave of migration of left-wing uh, uh, people, a lot of young people, uh, and also other uh, religious uh, communities like the Gülenist circles, etc., to migrate to uh, Europe. So that is why uh, Turkey is really an interesting country in terms of different kinds of migration uh, patterns, international migration patterns. Uh, you say in the book that Turkish migrants have always been instrumentalized by Turkish state actors since the beginning of the emigratory process in the 1960s. Yeah. And uh, also the current Turkish government's acts and policies very much contribute to the Muslimization of Turkish origin migrants in uh, the diaspora, basically to their labeling as Muslim. Mm -hmm. How does it do this? You know, what are some of the practical effects of this and, and how does it go about doing this? Yeah, actually, the instrumentalization of uh, Turkish diaspora or Turkish immigrants in Europe uh, and elsewhere started uh, back in 1990s, together with the globalization of uh, Turkey under the Özalist uh, democratic uh, regime, uh, which was also under the effect of the military regime, military legacy. In those days, basically, Kemalist uh, militarist understanding was dominant in trying to 
use uh, the Turkish diasporic communities as uh, some kind of lobbying instruments. Uh, before that, the Turks were basically unemployed people, which the uh, Turkish state tried to uh, send abroad uh, so that they could, uh, you know, find their own solutions to their existing uh, problems of uh, unemployment. So there was a good uh, strategy for the Turkish state back in 1960s and 70s to send them abroad uh, in a way. But then uh, in 1990s, uh, uh, this has uh, changed and Uh, together with the globalization of Turkey, the uh, diasporic networks uh, were instrumentalized. Uh, Brussels became important. Capital, European capitals became uh, important. And many uh, generals, many army officers, many uh, state officers, whenever they visited the European capitals, they tried to get together with the Turkish origin people through the mosques, through the existing uh, networks, uh, organizations, associations, fellowship uh, associations, etc., trying to make sure that they would remain Kemalists, they would remain uh, laicists, they would remain statist in a way. Uh, but then starting from uh, 2000s, uh, especially after 2005, after the accession negotiations started, paradoxically after the Turkey relations became a bit tense, the Turkish government, Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party tried to influence the uh, Turkish diaspora uh, using some religious networks, uh, some religious institutions institutions. For instance, Justice and Development Party established the uh, Union of European Turkish Democrats, UETD, back in 2006 as the liaison of the Justice and Development Party to reach out uh, these people. But then uh, this uh, kind of formation uh, had a greater impact over the Diyanet, the religious affairs uh, institution in Turkey, uh, which has a direct impact on the Turkish uh, diaspora through all these networks of mosques and everything. Uh, this was actually quite negative. This created some quite negative impact on the Turkish uh, diasporic communities because Uyetede, for instance, was mainly promoting the interests of the Sunni Muslim Turkish communities, Sunni Muslim male Turkish communities at the expense of all kinds of different communities, Alevis, Kurds, uh, Assyrians, even Armenians and uh, civic social democratic liberal uh, people. So uh, Islamization of uh, Turkish uh, diaspora politics uh, became actually destructive uh, for the Turkish uh, origin communities in the European countries. And this uh, uh, this is still uh, continuing. So there is a very divided, uh, very divided formation in this uh, what we call transnational space or diasporic space, uh, William. Now, oh, um, during the uh, 2000s, we mentioned it a bit earlier there, but there was a move of many educated young Turks and others from abroad to Turkey, a kind of reverse brain drain in a way yes. uh, that was going on where people started coming back, started setting up businesses and whatnot here. Uh, and now in recent years, that's again gone into reverse. And uh, there are various conflicting figures and reports, and it's quite hard to uh, ascertain exact numbers. But just talk about the, the recent brain drain essentially of educated often young people away from Turkey in recent years how significant is this and what could be some of the long-term effects 
Well, the young people who are inclined to migrate to European countries, of course, they were born in uh, the late 1990s. Uh, their childhood uh, passed through the Justice and Development Party uh, rule. They had actually uh, rather uh, good days uh, back in the uh, past, back in the early 2000s, when Turkey had this uh, great uh, Europeanization uh, process. So whenever they came across uh, something negative, a crisis moment, uh, as in the military coup attempt, they did not really want to uh, spend more time in uh, Turkey. And they, uh, of course, uh, tried to go abroad. Many of them went abroad. But of course, still, the uh, majority of uh, people are here. But this is understandable. Of course, intellectual people uh, want to have, want to be in places where they can be productive, where they can be in peace with themselves and with their environments. But uh, all in all, of course, this is a very uh, sad uh, situation. Uh, these people are still uh, young brains, very qualified uh, people. But of course, uh, this is a sad moment uh, for many of these uh, youngsters uh, who believe that uh, they can no longer uh, do in this country and they try uh, some other options. If they are given such options, of course, uh, they have great potential to contribute to the economies, uh, politics, society and culture of their countries of uh, residence. But uh, in the short term, there are losses. Uh, so this is the way I look at this uh, phenomenon. That was Ihan Kaya. Many thanks to him. And that was episode number 107 of Turkey Book Talk. If you're a fan of the podcast, remember to consider signing up as a member on Patreon to support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other areas. To be Become a member and get all that. Just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review the podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, including Spotify, which we're now on. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Virginia!